Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. I can't tell you what a blessing it is to be here. What an honor. Uh, I would say this if he wasn't here, but I believe the man I look to, up to most in the Southern Baptist life is Dr. Aiken. We have got such a wonderful leader in him. We love Southeastern. Four of my current staff are students here. So we send you a lot of money through tuition. So, uh, but uh, uh, this is a great school. I love the leadership. I've gotten to know so many in the last couple of years. I want to take a little bit of time before I preach to put on two hats. You mentioned that I teach at Fruitland. I want to rejoice with those at Fruitland that starting this fall, there's a new partnership where they will be able to, through Southeastern, get their last two years there. And so what a great day this is. This is Dr. Horton's dream, and we're so appreciative of that. And we've got a group of students waiting for y'all. The other hat I want to put on is just a second as the uh, convention president uh, to speak a word about two things I want to rejoice about, one thing that I'm concerned about. The good news are, uh, the good news is, that our two special offerings, Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong, are on a great trajectory upwards. Dr. Chitwood has now announced that he's going to be able to hire a significant, significant new amount of missionaries. That is just incredible. I praise God for Lottie and Annie's increases. But the thing that concerns me is that we have a lifeline that undergirds all that we do as Southern Baptists, and that's called the cooperative program. The cooperative program is either stagnant or declining, depending on what state you're in. In the state of North Carolina, the average Southern Baptist church in North Carolina now only gives 3% of their budget toward the cooperative program. Now, let me tell you how that affects this school. There's a Lottie Moon for international missions. There's a Annie Armstrong for North American missions, but there's no special offering for Southeastern. Uh, a great bit of the lifeline that holds this place together comes through the cooperative program. So can I just give you a, an appeal? I appeal to you that when you go out and you become pastors or servants in churches, that you'll be strong advocates for the lifeline of what we do as Southern Baptists. Be a strong advocate for the cooperative program. Commercial's over. All right. Uh, would you turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19, and I'm going to read actually verses 1 through 12. 1 Kings 19, 1 through 12, the title of my message is Depression Among Pastors. Depression Among Pastors. I was ordained in 1975. I've been serving as a pastor continually since. Uh, This is something that not only have I experienced, this is something I see is just, you're going to experience. I'll just promise you that right now. Before we look at the text, let's go to the Lord and ask the the true teacher, the Holy Spirit who breathed these words to give us truth. Lord Jesus, we honor you as our Lord. We're here because you called us. We're here with one desire only, and that's to glorify you. I, I love what Paul said, life or death, just Christ be magnified. So Lord, we're not asking for an easy life in the ministry. We just want to please you. But oh Lord, I pray right now you'd give us wisdom from your word. Prepare our souls for the hard times that can come for the low times emotionally. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings 19, this is right after Mount Carmel. Fire has fallen down from heaven. 
Oh, Elijah's taken a sword and hacked 850 false prophets to death. Now, that'll make you tired at the end of the day. And, uh, and here he is after this great victory going into deep depression. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Isn't it amazing? He could stand up to 850 false prophets and one woman says boo and he runs like a baby. But he himself went to a day's journey, came into the wilderness, came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying it's enough. Now Lord, take away my life for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. He arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, this, this is pity party country here, I, even I, only am left, and they seek to take my life, seek to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the rock, tore the mountains and broken pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. God put this on my heart that I would preach on this subject of depression in a minute in, among pastors. This morning in my quiet time, I decided to go online and read a chapter of an incredible book. I hope you'll get a copy of it. It's written by Charles Spurgeon. It's called Lectures to My Students. Spurgeon started a college to train pastors because the colleges of his day in Britain were too liberal. And what he would do every Friday afternoon, he'd come and give a lecture. And they are some of the most creative lectures you can ever imagine. Uh, chapter 11 is entitled, The Minister's Fainting Fits. <laughs> And he talked about how so many times we get ready to give up. And I, as I was reading that, I thought this is the exact setting that he was thinking about. He was preaching to young students who were about to go into the ministry, and he gave them a promise. He said, I promise every one of you are going to face seasons of depression. And he knew that person. Uh, let me read you something that I just found a few weeks ago in this experience of a pastor in Virginia. I'm, I'll read this. I've been a Baptist pastor for more than 35 years. I've battled depression and anxiety for 18 of those. During that time, I had two children at home. They wanted to play with daddy, but as much as I wanted to, I could not oblige. I did not have the physical energy or the emotional strength to deal with their young exuberance. Every day I pleaded with God to take away my darkness. 
I began to cloister myself from my family and my church. All my energy and motivation were gone. Early to bed and late to rise became my sleeping pattern. An empty shell does not even begin to describe the nothingness inside me. I prayed a lot. I took walks in our neighborhood and prayed. I sat in my office and prayed. I prayed in the sanctuary, the car, and on the back porch. I did indeed pray without seeking. I read my Bible and devotionals every day. Every day I pleaded with God to take away my darkness, but God did not. In the mid-1990s, my, my doctor offered to prescribe an antidepressant. I refused, not out of denial, but out of ignorance. I did not understand what I was fighting. I naively assumed that it was a spiritual or emotional prayer problem that prayer and willpower could conquer. I was wrong, and in 2003, the bottom fell out. I arrived at my church office on a beautiful spring morning in May. The warm sun was shining, flowers were blooming, trees were budding, birds were singing. It was a perfectly delightful morning. I was the first one at church. All was quiet and peaceful, but suddenly, for no perceivable reason, I felt a physical panic began to well up inside me. My entire body felt like it was on fire. Afraid to drive home and too physically and emotionally paralyzed to move, I called my wife to come get me. Hurry, please. I kept repeating to myself, what's taking her so long? If anyone ever had a nervous breakdown, I was having one. Heart racing, hyperventilating, panic, darkness descending. What if I pass out? Could I be having a heart attack? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All is lost. Sandy Marks, who is our church revitalization person in North Carolina, shared some statistics with me recently. He said that 45% of pastors have experienced such a degree, a degree of depression that they've had to take time off from the ministry. And that 45%, 75% of pastors say they experience on a regular basis high stress in times of depression in the ministry. John Henry Jowett, a contemporary of Spurgeon, said this, You seem to think that I have no ups and downs but just a level and lofty stretch of spiritual attainment with unbroken joy? By no means. I am often perfectly wretched and everything appears murky. Spurgeon himself said this, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope you never get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. Did you know that there were many Sundays where he would call his elders up and say, I can't preach this week. I'm too much in the grip of depression. I don't know how many, how many of us would last very long in the church if we called in on a regular basis too depressed to preach. Well, back to this story, we find a man who's praying to die, ready to give up, obviously in that place of depression. So I basically got two goals with this sermon. Let's look from this story and see where did Elijah get to this place of depression? What caused him to be depressed? And then secondly, how did God get him out of there? Because that's the most important thing we can do. So let me give you some reasons why Elijah came to this point of depression where he prayed to die. Number one, he had physical causes. Uh, he had just come out of hiding after three and a half years. He had the showdown on Mount Carmel. Can you imagine the adrenaline when he prayed and called down fire from heaven and then he took the sword and he killed the 850 false prophets and then he went up and he found a place, a place to pray, threw himself on the ground seven times in agony prayed that God would end the drought that he had prayed for and it took seven stretching times of prayer before finally he saw the cloud the size of man's hands 
And, and then he took off running. He told Ahab, it's going to rain. And then he took off running and he outran Ahab to Jezreel, which was a 20-mile run. That'll get you a little tired. A 20-mile run. And he was waiting at the gate of Jezreel with his hand pointed out, I told you so. So I would think that one of the reasons why he was susceptible to depression was because he had a complete physical exhaustion. Spurgeon, in that sermon entitled Minister's Fainting Fits, said that one of the things we've got to remember in the ministry is that we are souls attached to bodies. It's hard for the soul to be up if the body is down. And so we've got to take care of ourselves physically. He also talked about the fact that we're too sedentary, and that leads to depression as well. But, but let me share with you some thoughts, and please listen to my heart as a pastor who's been at it a long time. I believe that the experts tell us that 10 to 15% of those who experience depression experience it because of a chemical imbalance. And I have met well-meaning Christians who basically look at people and say, if you just pray a little harder, if you just read your Bible a little bit more, you should not be in this grip of something that is incapacitating like depression. I think that, folks, that doesn't match the realities. One of my favorite preachers, Dr. Aiken, is Tommy Nelson at Denton Bible Church. Oh, he's fun to listen to. He had a complete breakdown a few years ago, just like was described by this pastor that I read to you. Uh, he went from June to November completely unable to preach. He tried to pray himself out of it, and then finally, he took his wife's instructions and went to see a psychiatrist. This was his quote. To me, that was like, going, like Saul going to the witch of Endor for a Christian to go to a psychiatrist. He says, that's something you didn't do. I was a Dallas Seminary graduate. I counseled people. And so he gave him some inhibitors that helped him recover because let me tell you about, about Tommy Nelson. He's a type A personality. He was averaging teaching the Bible 20 times a week. He taught several times on Sunday. He had two early morning men's groups that he taught. He preached during the week, and then every Friday and Saturday, he took off somewhere and did his seminars. So he just had his adrenaline going for so long that eventually his body rebelled, the serotonin was depleted, and it took using inhibitors. Ron Dunn was a friend of mine, one of the greatest Bible teachers that's ever lived. I had him every year at my church. Uh, he struggled some with depression. But he had a tragedy in 1975. He had a son who had been diagnosed as bipolar. The son was given the medicines that the person needs to take when they are bipolar. But on Thanksgiving Day, 1975, his son was having a good day. He, he, he felt up for a change, and so he decided he did not need his medicines. They, they had a great family time together. He went home and committed suicide because the crash came immediately. But it's not just these things that could be physical causes. Tim LaHaye said that he had a friend of his who came to the point where he was captured by depression, went to see the doctor, and found out he was hypoglycemic. And when they got his sugar adjusted, he was a, we are souls attached to bodies. But in the second point, I really want you to listen to this, please. Second reason why he experienced depression was because he was emotionally exhausted. Now, this is worth writing down. If you can get this, you'll need to carry this with you through the ministry. <sighs> exhaustion is to the emotions, excuse me, ex exhaustion is to the body what depression is to emotions. Exhaustion is to the body what depression is to the emotions. 
If you were to go and say, we're having a spring-like weather day and we're going to go out and do some things, go home to your parents' house and help get the yard all straightened out, or all the things you haven't done all winter. Have you ever had one of those days where you did so much you couldn't hardly lift your hands, you were just so tired, you just wanted to sit down, you wanted to lay down? Suppose one of your friends were to see you and you see you just limping, limping along, just completely, hey, brother, I don't see any pep in your step. <laughs> you know, we Christians ought to be on fire. You know what you need to do, brother? You need to go pray. You need to go read your Bible. No, you need to go to bed. When you've used your physical resources, you've got to get some rest. And when we wring out our emotions and wring out our emotions and wring out our emotions, we can hit empty. And when you hit empty, depression settles in. And Spurgeon, in his particular talk on this, talked about the reason why ministers tend to be more prone to depression. He says it's because of the emotional nature of what we do. Can I just share something with you? I cringe every time my phone rings. Because I don't get good news. I've got a large church. And I'm constantly standing by people who are having crises. Uh, I'm constantly putting out fires. <laughs> that, that'll, that'll drain you emotionally. Church would be great without people, wouldn't it? Anyway, but... Uh, 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 no, sorry. I love my church. They're watching right now. Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> uh, but we're in a business that we get drained emotionally. That's the nature of what you do. Because we love people. We share their burdens. We stand by people in constant uh, crises. And not only did, uh, think of what happened. I think a lot of Elijah's depression, it wasn't just because of the threat of Jezebel. I think he could have fallen into it just because of the positive use of emotions. Can you imagine the adrenaline he felt when he was calling fire down from heaven? Can you imagine that face off with 850 false prophets, 450 to Baal, 400 to Ashtaroth? Can you imagine the joy he felt when the people said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. I mean, he was, and then to pray like he prayed, I, I think, he would have hit empty anyway, but now he's susceptible to this one woman's threat and he, and he hits empty. Folks, let me explain something. If you're going to survive the ministry, you're going to have to find ways that you can get some emotional respite. Sometimes the solution is not go to, to more Bible reading or go to another conference. Sometimes you might need to go fish more or go take a hike in the mountains. Uh, I would have said golf, but golf doesn't help at all. It just makes you worse. <laughs> so. Third reason that Elijah got depressed, Elijah got depressed because he lost hope. He had been the witness of an incredible victory. The nation was in the throes of changing gods. And he proved to them through the power of God that God alone was God. And I believe he went home that day and thought, battle's over. The prophets are gone, fire has fallen, the people have seen that God is the true God. And then he's reminded that although that battle had been won, the war is not over. And folks, I want to tell you something, until Jesus comes back, it ain't over. We may win some revivals, uh, some, some, some uh, victories, we may experience some revivals, but it's not over till he comes back. And so he lost hope. I don't believe we can live without hope. Major F.J. Kushner was captured in 1968 and he was kept in the same Hanoi prison of war camp that John McCain was in. A horrible place. 
He said when he came there, because of the way they treated the prisoners, the conditions, the things they went through, the beatings, the, the brainwashing, he said no one there had a spring in their step. It was just, a, you could tell everybody was suffering emotionally as well as physically except one American, and this American had sold out his friends to become a collaborator that worked with the North Vietnamese, and he did that because the North Vietnamese had told them, if you will turn on your own friend and you work for us, we'll let you go early. So they'd given him that promise. One day, he overheard them talking, and they were talking about how foolish he was. We're never going to let him go. He's going to die here. And when he realized that he had been lied to and that he had no other hope but living and dying in that camp, Kushner said he went to his cot, curled up in a fetal position, and two weeks later was dead because he lost hope. But can I say this, Christian? No Christian should ever lose hope. As long as we have the promises of God, we have hope. I've been at this 45 years, and I've gone through rough times, and I've seen God take us through the other side. I've seen Romans 8:28 come true over and over again. But lastly, how did, why did he get there? He thought he was all alone. I, only I am left. And God will later on remind him, no, there's 7,000 more that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. But he thought he was all alone. I've just sent in to the biblical recorder an editorial that will come out sometime in the near future. It's entitled, The Lonely Pastor. One of the things that's a burden on my heart, and Spurgeon brought this out in Minister's Fainting Fits when I read this morning. He said, there's a special loneliness among us pastors because the truth of the matter is nobody really knows what we do and, and, and what we go through. Pastor's wives, the same thing. And so... Sandy Marks said 70% of pastors say they do not have a single friend. And so here he was thinking he was all alone. But can I just tell you one of the things I think makes us feel that we're all alone? And that's because we're so doggone dishonest with each other about how things are going in our lives. How you doing, brother? Great. Every day with Jesus, sweeter than the day before. I want you to know this. Some of the worst days I've ever experienced after I came, happened after I came to know Jesus. If we take the masks off, we would, would realize that no temptation has taken you except what is common to man. But we pretend like everything's all right, so it makes us feel alone. All right, how did God get him out? Four things. Number one, God met his needs. The mercy of God is all over this chapter. Here he is. He's running away. He lays down, goes to sleep, wakes up the next morning. There's an angel. And there's some fresh food cooked by the angel. And he eats the food and he doesn't get a lecture. The angel just says, go back to sleep. He knew he was tired. And he just said, you need food, you need rest. So he slept, woke up the next day, said, here's some more food for you. He met his needs. Second thing that God did to bring him out of depression, God confronted him. Verse 8, what are you doing here, Elijah? And I think sometimes God has to come to us, especially when we're in the, when we're in the pity party mode. God has to come and say, what are you doing here? Martin Luther was another great leader who went through seasons of depression. One time he went through a period of depression, had not left his room for two weeks. His wife, Katie, who was his equal, uh, would bring him food. He'd tell her to get out. He just stayed in there with the, with the cloud hanging over him. After two weeks, she came in one time and she had on her black 
widows uh, go to the funeral type dress. Every woman had one dress that you would wear if you were about to go to a funeral. And he'd been out of touch for two weeks, so he said, well, who died? And she said, well, God died. And he said, how dare you speak blasphemy like that? And she said, I just thought God died the way you're acting. <laughs> I think sometimes God has to just confront us and say, what are you doing here? Number three, God reminded him he was not alone. Verse 18, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. He said, no, you're not alone. You've got 7,000 others that could stand by you if you would just gather together. And can I make a plea to you as you enter into the ministry? I plead with you, don't be lone rangers in the ministry. Now, I'm blessed. I have an incredible staff, and I've got fellowship with them, and that keeps us going. My wife is, is extraordinary as a pastor's wife, and she recognizes that pastor's wives, ministers' wives, have a unique experience. So she has our ministry staff wives get together to go out to eat and have fun once a month, and they sit there, and they eat, and they fellowship. I'd encourage you to try that because we need to be involved in fellowship with each other but beyond that, I go to our Monday morning's pastor's conference. Uh, I may be the pastor of a large church, but I need to be around other pastors. I was there this Monday and went out to eat with four of them afterwards. Be sure you don't stay as a Lone Ranger. Lastly, what did God do to bring him out? God came to him in a still, small voice. I don't know how to describe this. It was something unique. But can I just give you this insight? When we get to our lowest points, God knows just how to bring each one of us back emotionally. It's not cookie cutter because we're not cookie cutter. But God has a way of bringing us back. I've been so blessed in the churches I've served. I only had one difficult church, and when I say that, we baptized more people in that church than any church I ever served. So God was still there, and there are great memories I have there, but there were some difficult people, and I went through some some hard times and it was at that church that I for the first time experienced what I believe would have been diagnosed as clinical depression for for a time let, let me explain what happened I, I knew the church would be difficult but Karen and I were absolutely convinced that God told us to go but after we'd been there about four months we had one of those Wednesday night business meetings I was presiding over it that you always hear about but you can't believe that Christians would act that way and it happened, and people were yelling at each other, and they were yelling at me. And it went on for 45 minutes. I couldn't get it under control. Finally, one of my godly older deacons stood up and said, we're not doing any good, let's go home. So that's how it resolved. So nothing was resolved. The church was at its throats. The word went out in the community, this church is falling apart, its days are over. I went home that night, and for the first time in my life, I was seized by deep depression. I couldn't sleep. I woke up the next day. I couldn't eat. Something's wrong if I can't eat. I couldn't eat. Uh, I didn't want to go outside the house. Karen asked me, I think on Friday, if I'd go to the grocery store and pick something up. I went to the grocery store parking lot. I saw a member. I turned around and went back home. I couldn't leave the house. What was worse is in a previous church, we led a young couple to Christ and they had scheduled their vacation so that they would come on that weekend. They came on Friday night to fellowship with us and I was an empty suit. 
I, I was just sitting there. I sat on the chair like a bump on the wall. I couldn't even be a part of the small conversations. I, I was dead, emotional. On Saturday, Karen was being as pleasant as she could be. There was nothing inside of me, so finally, we lived in a parsonage next door to the church. I walked over and went in the sanctuary. I said, God, I don't want to live anymore. I just want to die. And I heard God, and I don't mean I heard him audibly, but God has a way of speaking sometimes that's even louder than audibly. But I heard God at that moment say, okay, write it down. Steve Scoggins is dead. This is the day that Steve Scoggins is dead. It dies. It doesn't matter what they do to a dead man. And when I reckoned on that Romans 6 fact, all of a sudden I experienced the most incredible filling of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I started running around the sanctuary, you know, and just shouting and praising God. And my minister of music walked in right in the middle of that. Just said, sorry, brother. <laughs> that next day I got to church early, was standing in the parking lot. The first person that drove up, I said, you're going to tell your grandchildren about today one day. I knew that God was going to come through. I preached that day, and when the invitation was given, folks, I believe it was several hundred that came forth. God moved. The next Sunday, we had a record attendance in the church. But God knew how in that darkest moment to bring me out of that. I guess God sent you here so you can be all encouraged that you're going to have some bad times ahead. Isn't that good? Cheer up. The worst is yet to come. <laughs> well, that's a part of it. Spurgeon felt he needed to warn his students, God put this on my heart for you. But I want to tell you something. You're going to find God faithful. And when you're in that point of time when you feel nothing, then you get the privilege of walking by faith. I think that's the ultimate victory. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray right now that your spirit will take these words from your word and encourage hearts. They're, Lord, there are people in this room who may have worn a mask when they walked in here, but something's going on. And they know something's not right. Oh, Lord, would you be the lifter of our heads in this room? Would you just take your children, put your arms around them, restore us, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.